when this movie came out, you mentioned that it had a lukewarm reception and it was often used as kind of an exhibit A in the case for Kubrick as a cold director. I don't think he is, but you know, the movie ends with that title card that says epilogue. It was in the reign of George III that the aforesaid personages lived and quarreled, good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. You know, the movie has that kind of uh, pitying God's eye view on on the spectacle that it depicts. And so obviously a lot of people took that and regarded the film as cold and inhuman. But I was surprised on this viewing how moved I found myself by that section in the second half of the film about Barry Lyndon's young son who dies uh, untimely. And there's that really excruciating and powerful scene where Barry and his wife are with the son on his deathbed and Ryan O'Neill cries and, and, you know, tries to comfort the child and the child ends up comforting his parents. It's a remarkable scene because Barry Lyndon is depicted throughout the movie as, you know, like Ebert said, you know, somebody with no there there, narcissistic and self-pitying. And importantly, I think a man to whom things simply happen, mm-hmm. right? In Will's earlier summary, he mentioned the uh, the duel, which, which first sends Barry on his journeys because he thinks he's killed this English Captain Quinn. Uh, but he later finds out is over the love of a woman. But of course, he later finds out that uh, the woman's family actually orchestrated the duel. His pistol was never loaded with anything that could kill Captain Quinn. And the whole death has been faked simply because the family wants to get rid of Barry so that their daughter can marry Captain Quinn, who, of course, is a man of much greater fortune than he is. But in that scene in the second half, in that death scene, this is where Kubrick's particular humanity comes out, where, you know, he may have a God's eye view. He may ultimately regard everybody in the frame as being, you know, future Ash basically. And he pities that, you know, humanity develops these grand spectacles around rituals that are ultimately designed to put people in the ground. But within that context, Barry Lyndon is who he is. He He's still a man. He's still a man who feels love and feels pain. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is, it is, uh, you know, really tragedy in the strictest sense, right? It's events that were inevitable, but it doesn't make them any less tragic. And, uh, Kubrick's choice in music, I think, you know, he uses this uh, Handel's Saraband throughout the film, you know, a piece that uh, has a kind of, I don't know, tragic inevitability, or at least that's what it, that's what it says to me. Uh, interestingly, the Saraband, I mean, that, I only know the piece as, as Handel's Saraband, but Saraband originally was a, uh, it was some kind of dance form that I think was invented in Spain. And it was uh, it was actually banned for obscenity for some reason. But Handel adapted it. And so, you know, it, it became this famous piece of Baroque music. But I don't think anybody really, I don't think anybody really listened to Sarah Bands for, you know, hundreds of years. And uh, the use of this piece in Barry Lyndon apparently brought the form back. And it actually has uh, since been used in a Levi's jeans commercial. Oh, fantastic. I'm sure Kubrick's very (laughs) proud wherever he is. (laughs) But anyway, I think uh, everything you're saying here about kind of the the fatalism of the film and the fact that, you know, it does have this kind of uh, omniscient God's eye to everything. Uh, it seems to me that that was, you know, I, I looked at some of the uh, I looked at some of the more critical reviews from when it came out in preparation for this episode. And it seems to me that was uh, that was kind of what people didn't like about it. I mean, I think they missed a few things, one of which is the actual emotional element that is definitely present and is manifested, uh, you know, in that scene. And of course, why does why is the boy injured in the first place? It's because Barry spoils him and he gets him this uh, full adult size horse for his ninth birthday. 
even though everybody knows that's dangerous and the two, the boy is too small to ride a horse. And then of course, even though he tells the boy, don't, you know, you're not allowed to ride the horse unless I'm around. Of course, the boy goes off and, and does it anyway. But I think this kind of omniscient uh, narration and the fact that Ryan O'Neill's character isn't exactly a hero. I mean, he's just, or even a protagonist. He's just sort of the central figure. How much sympathy we're supposed to have for him or, or what we're supposed to hope for him, I think is quite ambiguous. So I think for some people, the film came off rather cold. And I think the uh, the most uh, acidic uh, articulation of this was from Pauline Kael, right? Who else? Uh, in The New Yorker. <laughs> have you have you come across this review before? You know, I haven't read this particular review, but I mean, she was a famous dissenter of Kubrick. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, boy, did she ever dissent on this one. Um, although I think she was conveying something, uh, you know, that was at least uh, maybe a more extreme version of something that was kind of in the air at the time. She wrote that Kubrick has taken a quick-witted story and controlled it so meticulously that he's drained the blood out of it. It's a coffee table movie. We might as well put it at a three-hour slideshow for art history majors. The music, off-puttingly classical under the title, might as well be embalming fluid. Even the action sequences in Barry Lyndon aren't meant to be exciting. They're only meant to be visually exciting. God, I, I I didn't think I could be any more annoyed by Pauline Kael's <laughs> reviews, but uh, there's a there's another one to add to the list. 